This is Jonathan Victory. We're joined by Emer Reynolds, uh, director of The Farthest, which is showing at the Audi Dublin Film Festival on Sunday, the 26th of February. That's correct. Thank you very much for joining us. I I was really looking forward to talking to you because uh, a few years ago, as a birthday present, I got a book uh, Carl Sagan and a few others wrote called Murmurs of Earth, and it was about uh, the work they did on the Golden Record that's been sent into space on the Voyager spacecraft. And I, I was reading it and thinking, I, I'd really like to make a documentary about this. You were already in production on this documentary, The Farthest, which is about just that and about sort of the, the voyage of the Voyager spacecraft as a whole. And I was just wondering, how did you get involved in this project? How did you discover uh, this incredible story? Well, I've had a massive love of space and science since I was a child myself. Uh, although I never read Murmurs of Earth. I wish I had. <laughs> When I did read it last year, or, or a couple of years ago when I was in research, I thought it was just fantastic to read the first-hand accounts of it. Yeah. So we, after we made, John Murray, the producer, and I, after we made our last film, we were talking about future projects and discovered massive love of space and science and, and a bit of an obsession with Voyager in each of us, which was really wonderful. And we started, we started looking into making a film about the Voyager spacecraft. And coincidentally, that very weekend, um, NASA announced that Voyager 1 had just left our solar system and was the first human-made object into interstellar space. So it was a lovely confluence and coincidence of talking about making a film and then this moment in time where you thought, actually, we could make a film and, you know, and sort of like at least centre some of it around this historic moment. My documentary, I probably would have just called it Voyager or something unimaginative, but um, the title is just such an important thing to get right. So how did yeah. you settle on the John farthest? John Murray came up with the title and... Uh, the first day he said it, I just thought it was really quirky and cinematic, you know, a kind of an odd title where you'd go, ooh, what, what, what one is that, you know? And I Certainly at one stage we were thinking of trying to call it Voyager, but every time we mentioned the word, people thought we were talking about the Star Trek series. Actually, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I mean, it, it is an incredible voyage the spacecraft goes on, but I suppose the, yeah, the association with Star Trek might have um, caused problems. Or, um, or got people into the <laughs> cinema. <laughs> Uh, yeah, with Plus the right branding and font, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, if uh, had I made this documentary, I probably would have focused more on the contents of the Golden Record because it was the time capsule Carl Sagan and a, a team around him had sent into space. Um, should aliens ever find it, and they have some idea of what human civilization was like, and um, so Murmurs of Earth was written by various members of the team about how they selected like images and music to go yeah. on it. Probably for the best you directed it, though, because you, you then brought in and I'm largely focused on the scientific journey and the contribution to science the Voyager spacecraft made. And I, th and I think that's even discussed in the movie how often the focus is on the time capsule and the golden record. Um, what was your approach to figuring out the story and, and how you, you would tell, like, not, not just about the golden record, but about the whole sort of uh, development and journey of the spacecraft? Well, I saw it as... Uh, you know, it's it's obviously it's a film about the Voyager spacecraft, but the film I wanted it to be basically three intertwined stories. So the first story is of the spacecraft itself uh, and the people who designed, built, and flew it. About where it went, what it discovered, where it is now—the first human-made object to leave the solar system and in, in interstellar space. So it's an extraordinary adventure story of this scientific bravado this this dream that came out of the 1970s and flew through the solar system at massive speeds so it's really exciting then there's the second story which is the golden record and and the people and the dream of that you know how would you communicate civilization to 
extraterrestrials were, were we ever to meet any and all the story of how they chose the music how they chose the images the team all that and then of course the third story is linked to that well it's linked to both it's it's i think all great documentaries take a kind of a, a straight a spine a, a real story and then have the opportunity to kind of branch out into bigger ideas or you know a way to expand the idea out so because voyager is going to become it's likely to be the the only remnant of our existence in the future. It'll outlive humanity. It'll still be out there in the galaxy when the Earth is burnt to a crisp by the dying sun. So it kicks up all these big cosmic questions, you know, the primal questions. Why are we here? What's it all for? Is there anyone out there? Are we alone? So the film the film was, was conceived as a kind of a dialogue between all those three strands you know so I was trying to keep all keep all those balls in the air and obviously I mean the the, the greater part of the story is the Voyager journey itself um, just because of the magnitude of it a 40 year scientific adventure but you know it's the human story as well of the golden record and the and the, the primal questions yeah and, and I suppose Carl Sagan was saying that uh, a lot of it was about what it says about us at that point in history in the 1970s were like it was as much as it would be a statement for potential aliens find it it was also a reflection of us and uh and like like what kind of uh, impact that would have absolutely because the the chances of it ever being discovered by an alien is remote is is nearly too you know that's putting too much emphasis on it. it it's likely to be never found it's just going to be in empty empty interstellar space for all time it'll only be found if there is a a civilization who are capable of traveling in interstellar space. It won't actually come close to a star system or a planet for hundreds of millions of years, perhaps never. So it'll only it's only likely to be found by a, a, a race of beings where they do exist who could travel. So in fact, it, they knew, even as they were putting it together, you'll recall from Murmurs of Earth, they knew that they were really talking to the people of Earth when they put it together. You know, what would we say about ourselves? How would we represent this planet so those were the conversations it, w- it was a love letter to humanity at mm. that time and going forward to, to now and 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 it's been borne out by the, the the continued conversation to do with what's on it what's not on it you know they never showed um any pictures of war they didn't show any pictures of religions you know they, they were very 70s in some of their tastes on it they, they yes were, the nude pictures of the man and woman were not allowed by NASA, you know, because there was a sensitivity to nude p- pictures in space. Equally, things like they kicked off, the record was kicked off with a speech by Kurt Voltheim, who was the then Secretary General of the United Nations. And subsequent to that time, and, and the capsule being already in space long afterwards, he was discovered to have been a, a a Nazi in Austria during the war. So, you know, so it has all these really interesting comments on on a moment in history on yeah, Earth. Definitely. And I mean, even just and, and about that process of selection where they were deciding they'll put their positive self forward first and not sort of, I think they said if we included a picture of an atomic bomb, that might seem like we were boasting or Aggressive. looking to start a fight or, yeah, yeah and just, um, and I, I think there was a, a um, a, a part that really interested me was just about the selection of music because they only had 90 minutes to get across uh, music from all the world's different cultures and they finally bring 
they finally have a list ready. And I, I, I think uh, Sagan was telling a story about uh, there was some Irish American congressman who was asking him, could we put a piece of Irish music Danny on it? Boy. <laughs> I, and he wanted it to be Danny Boy. That's the annoyed. There's so much better Irish music you could pick. But Carl Sagan had to explain to him, well, we, we couldn't include everyone. And he's like, yeah, but Ireland is an important culture. And Sagan was telling him, well, yes, but I'm Jewish and Jewish is an important culture, but I didn't put any Jewish music on it. So um, they had to... There was also that, oh, do you want to tell the the story about the Beatles and just they, they were meant to be included on the record? Yes, uh, what they, happened? They they approached the Beatles record company. Uh, um, it's rumoured, the song they were looking to put on is rumoured to be um, Here Comes the Sun, which would have been a beautiful addition to the 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 record. And uh, yeah, the, the publishing company wouldn't allow, wouldn't give them the clearance to use it. Said they didn't license for outer space. So they were worried, like that they wouldn't get royalties in yeah. case another civilization. Yeah. And Frank Drake, who's you know the, the founder of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and you know the discoverer of the Drake equation, which is a famous equation that can aims to try to calculate the possibility of aliens in the universe or on a, any given planet. He says. You know, we said to them, but it's going into outer space. It'll never be, you know, heard by humans. And they said, no, they wouldn't permit it. So yeah. it's a terribly funny story. Short-sightedness of it. I hate the story more every time I hear it because it is, <laughs> I mean, it's exactly that. It's a sort of, it's the focus on the material and the sort of legal lease and the, um, you know, how's this going to affect our money on Earth? And they just were just blinded to the sort of like bigger picture about what it would mean. And um like, like, I definitely think uh, Frank Drake spoke to that very powerfully, and I, and he he's absolutely a, like a huge name in in massive, physics, and I and think I um, was massively starstruck when I met him. He's a beautiful man, and we had a wonderful interview with him. And and with him and people involved in the Voyager uh, project, and uh, Carl Sagan's son, and just and like, what what was it like um, getting to sit down with these people and talking to them about? I mean, the way they were putting it was. Um, like that this will be remembered as the mission of the 20th century, that yeah. um, sh- should our civilization continue and get further into space, this will be considered a huge landmark. So like, what was it like actually contacting them and then finally being able to sit down and talk with them? Oh, you know, it's not a cliche. It is a cliche, but it, I mean it. it. It was a massive honor. And we were incredibly starstruck by all of them. They're such huge names in space, techno- you know, in that whole world and and just to actually sit and talk. We, we, we made massive effort to have a lot of time for each interview. So I think each interview lasted over three hours and we interviewed over 30 people and they were all these giants of space sciences. And as you say, including Nick Sagan, who was only a little boy at the time. He was seven years, years old when they put his, his voice on the golden record. And he was telling me, like in his interviews, we, we were trying to capture a, a feeling in the interview that was of intimacy and honesty and humor, you know, to try to tap into the human experience of what it was like for all these people. So we had wonderfully long, rambling, casual kind of feeling in the interview. And I think they responded very well to our crew. Or we're all Irish. Well, Irish based. Our sound recordist is Kiwi Horgan, who's, who's a New Zealander, but, but lived in Ireland for the last 30 years. So, um, you know, we had a really nice atmosphere. It was quite... Um, warm and inviting and as a result they they spoke very very intimately and honestly and uh, you know had, we had such wonderful interviews Nick Sagan told about uh, as a child his father would have dinner parties with Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein and they would all be in his house and chatter because my eyes were on stalks I was so excited to uh, to hear this story 
So really, how we came upon them and how we chose to who to have in the film, Claire Strong, the producer, and I went on a, a whistle-stop research tour of the States. We think we did 12 cities in eight days. We met mm. a serious amount of, of people who were involved in the project and in the Golden Record. And then, you know, we're trying to find a cast of characters that would really communicate, you know, who would really, wouldn't speak in jargon, you know, who'd want to try to tell this exciting, wonderful story to as broad an audience as possible. So, okay, carrying on Sagan's tradition in a way, I suppose. Yes, exactly. He hasn't he fallen far from the Sagan tree. You know, he's he Nick Sagan certainly has that turn of phrase and that poetry. And it is extraordinary just seeing him process it as an adult. Then, when he he was included in the selection of the world's languages, where they got a few dozen languages and had people say something so as an eight-year-old he said hello from the children of planet earth and it, it like him processing how billions of years from now that's still potential potentially something that could be heard and uh you know you know I've, uh, like I've, I've made short documentaries myself and even on a short like the amount of footage you have to look through and pare it down um like how, how do you go we through had, that process yeah, we, like i said we, we interviewed over 30 people we had i think we had 118 hours of interview and the fil- the editor, Tony Cranston, and I really had our work cut out for us to try to distill the story down from such a, a well... I mean, it was all it was all gold dust, you know. We so much... We could have made ten films out of the material we had, you know. There was, there's so much detail, there's so much anecdotes, there's so much humanity and humour and joy in all the stories, you know. So how did we... You know, you're just trying to distill it down to... The essence of the the story and uh, like a two hour length. I mean, three, every hour, every interview I think I did was over three hours. So right, so even just one interview alone yeah. would have been longer than the, the finished running time. Yeah, yeah. There, was, there was a moment in one of the interviews um, with one of the NASA scientists where um, he kind of he kind of slid down in his chair and kicked off his shoes. And I thought to myself, oh, right now we're you know now we're really getting somewhere. You know, because he's, he's he's relaxed and he's. He wants to to talk as though there's no camera here. And, you know, and that was the feeling I got from most of the interviews, which was was very rewarding. You have to work very hard, as you know yourself, to work very hard in the interview to to encourage the interviewee and to stay engaged and to really listen, you know, not to to drift off on your own agenda. You know, what did you say? (laughs) (laughs) Getting. Of course, you have a you have a distinguished career as an editor on some of the big projects in uh, recent history of Irish film. So, I mean, that that must have stood to you then when when you are trying to sort of, you know, keep the bigger picture in mind of, you know, what the two hour movie is going to be like. Yeah, I I, I definitely I I definitely bring that skill set. To the table when I'm directing, you know, you you can't wash that out of your experience. You know, it's very much part of how I, I think and operate when I'm trying to make a film. But um, I do also very consciously try to not be the editor when I'm when I'm directing. You know, I try to think like a, a director would, which is I'm just going to film whatever I feel like and not try to rationalize how this might go in the finished film or whether I need it or not. You know, so I try to throw off those shackles and then leave enough room for for Tony Cranston in this case, but whoever the editor would be that would that they would have then their role, their voice, their responses to what I give. Oh, to what I find out in the field. I, I attended a lecture in, I went to IDT John Leary and um, <clears throat> when I was in college, we had a guest lecture from Tony Lawson, who's an editor who's worked with Neil Jordan and Stanley Kubrick, mm-hmm. no less. And um, 
it, it got to a point where he said everyone thinks they can edit. Like, um, people will accept that to be a cinematographer or an art director or some technical job, you need to work on developing a certain skill set. And it's kind of closed off to most people. But because um, editing software is so widely available now, everyone thinks they can put arrange clips and edit because it's instinctive. I mean, like, is editing instinctive or are there certain skills you need to develop to be a great editor? Oh, you know, I... I it's one. It's it's a great thing that there's been a democratization where people can get the machines and software on their phone and their laptop and actually put together films. But of course, the skill of editing is is a much broader skill than, you know, than what that implies. You you need to be a a, a king. So storyteller first and foremost. You need to understand film grammar on a very very sub molecular level. You know, there's there's so much minutiae and intricacies to how one, two, three shots go together, how, what they mean towards each other, how they influence each other. And over the course of, you know, a five minute stretch of a film, a 25 minute stretch, an hour long stretch, you know, there's like ripples in a pond through every change you make in a film. So it's a it's an invisible art form, but no it requires, I think, the same amount of training and study and devotion as any other crafts in film. It is the final arrangement of um, the, the footage, so yeah, yeah. absolutely. Or, or making the film the third time, the, to use the tired expression. Um, how would that work out then when you're deciding what music to use when? Because as, as, as someone already familiar with the Golden Record, I, I recognise every single piece of music as it was coming up, but how, how did you decide when to gauge, when to use the jazz piece or the classical piece or whatever? Yeah, uh, you know, that was all, that was pure spontaneous editing experience. Tony would try different pieces of the Golden Record music in, in certain sections, you know, and, and would show me and I would respond accordingly, you know, loved some, wasn't sure about others. We were trying to find, we couldn't, we couldn't use every piece of music, and there's 27 pieces of music, so we couldn't use every piece, so we were trying to find a selection that would give you the flavor of the golden record and of course it was also tied in with the the score in the film which is by the wonderful Irish composer Ray Harmon which is a, you know is a very modern score that's holding the whole film together as a unit and then also there was there were commercial tracks in there that I was choosing as, as my voice in the film like the know, carpenters like, and stuff exactly. and uh, I would have loved it if my, my only note about the film is in the credits music you used here comes the sun just as a screw you to the to the Beatles record company, yeah, I, I think yeah. that would have been nice. But um, did you like the? Oh, I love the last song. In fact, the last song um, is the only it's the only commercial track in the film that isn't from the seventies. All the rest of them were from the, before nineteen seventy seven, which was when Voyager was launched. So mm, that's good for grounding it, I suppose. Yeah, no, in, in my mind, I kept thinking like. Voyager. In Voyager's mind, it's still the seventies. You know, Voyager doesn't know the music of Earth has moved on. So you know, Voyager is still thinking in this way. But the final song. Even though it has a 70s sound to it, it's a more modern song by an American artist called Archer Pruitt. And actually, I found it. It was it was part of the genesis of making the film because I heard it on a uh, by 10 years ago, driving uh, one one night, late night, driving home from Belfast. And I heard it on a radio show and uh, the lyrics of it were were so pertinent to Voyager. And I was. I was like, if I ever make a film by Voyager, I'm going to use this track. What is great about the documentary, though, is that um, it, it, it's dealing with science and it's it's it's, it's charging like this um, huge endeavor in science. But you don't approach it in a dry way. There is a very strong visual sensibility to the film. And uh, particularly any of these shots in outer space, you seem 
Uh, am I right in saying that there seemed to have been a mix of CG and some more like uh, paint-based kind of effects? Or, or could you talk about like uh, what that process was like finding somebody to develop those shots? So um, the I, I'd say the visual landscape of the film, there, there are a number of key uh, pr protagonists and key collaborators there. One is Kate McCulloch, who shot it, who's a, a, a long-term collaborator of mine, a magnificent visionary filmmaker and, and I just love her eye you know she can point the camera at anything and I just love whatever she sees I think it's beautiful we really wanted it to be epic and elegant and modern then Joe Fallover who's a wonderful production designer he was brought in to kind of imagine a, a, a world a kind of a supportive immersive spacey world where we could we could we could riff on some concepts to do with aliens and to do with outer space and not actually always have to be using CGI. So we, we did really inventive, playful things like filmed paint bouncing on the top of a, a, a music speaker, you know, slow motion globules of paint and really macro photography of, of chemical explosions. And, you know, so and all that stuff was drawn to try to be be a visual language for the, the madness of what we we're talking about. It's very then, Kubrick. It's very like Douglas Trumbull, who did the special effects on 2001 Space yeah, Odyssey yeah, and Tree of Life. And yeah. so it's, it's that kind of style mixed with the CG. I thought that exactly. was good to sort of change it yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. So and, and then the third element was um, the CGI, which was done by a wonderful Irish artist called Ian Kenny, all from his small studio in, uh, in Monkstown. And he did it all on his own, and it's you know it's extraordinarily epic and beautiful. So it was a it was a third way where we might immerse. You know, it was all in the service of immersing the audience in this epic story. I, I can't wait to see it on the screen in the Savoy's that we're showing. Yeah. And um, yeah, no, that that's going to be something you you don't want to miss. Um, like even the the opening shots, there was a lot of shots just facing upwards to the sky. How, how did that image come to mind? Was that between you and Kate, or yeah. is that? It was just the idea of looking out to the sky and trying to... I suppose night photography would, would be different because how many... What kind of exposure would you need to get, like, stars? But I think it's just about just thinking of how the sun lights up the sky so that's blue, but the stars are still out there. And it's just, like, it seems like a very strong image to open yes, the film with. It I mean, that came from, a, that came from a, a dream I had and a line that I had put in the proposal, which was to do with, you know, that, that we're... we're a land-based creature looking upwards, you know, that we have this instinct to look out and wonder. And I thought that the time-lapse photography, when you see the stars wheeling and all that, I think it's really, really beautiful, but I thought it was perhaps overused a little bit. So I was trying to find a language that would tap into that idea of looking up at the stars. And when we did the first one, we were trying to test. It was kind of quite a complicated cinema rig for the red the red dragon to be upside down and looking straight up and to be gyroscopically balanced and all that so we had to do a number of tests to do it and when i saw the first one which was daylight and looking up i just we were kate and i were both really struck by how it pulled you into that idea that you're still in space even though it's daylight it, stars are all still out there you know like it just seemed to really in a in a nice fresh way really register that idea very strongly and I think another visual thing you incorporated were children's paintings from Irish schools, which I, I thought was a nice touch because, I mean, I suppose the, the time capsule on the Voyager, I suppose the time capsule on the Voyager is going to have this, um, like, uh, 
reflection of human culture in it. I, I, I would consider the documentary important in its own right as a reflection on that, but you managed to include some artwork from uh, young kids in Irish schools. Like, did you go around just asking them to paint aliens or, or yeah, what did my, you do? That was my sister is a teacher in Rainey. My niece is in primary school and uh, I, w- I just asked their help to get some of their classmates and uh, teachers in their schools to ask the students just to paint. I think I gave them a brief of three things. I asked them to paint what aliens it looked like. I asked them to paint um, their idea of what space, you know, what space made them think. And then I asked them to paint uh, the future, you know, because I remember when I was in school being asked to imagine. In fact, it must have been around now. I was picturing, I think it was 2020, we were asked to paint. Oh, okay. What what did you predict? I I had everyone living in um, space stations, a kind of a what would you call it, like a halo around the earth, oh. flying cars and all that. But I mean, definitely thought we were going to be much further ahead with all the cool sci-fi gear than we actually are. I think another, given another 50 years, we, we might be at that point. <laughs> we might um, need to be at that stage because this place would be ruined. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's... We, actually, before we get into that and that whole aspect of it, <coughs> I, I just said something else had occurred to me that... Um, Another mind-blowing thing about the Voyager, and, that, and and the documentary goes into like all the uh, data they collected on the planets uh, that like they'd never been able to before, but they were doing this on computer systems that had very low processing power compared to now, and uh, like some of them were even defensive about it, like just just saying, "Look, it's what we had to work with at the time." It, I mean, uh, I mean, they were they were basically saying the most powerful computer in the world at the time would have been was it that it was as was it powerful as a smartphone or a key fob? Or less, like, less computing power than a key fob. I, I mean, it's astonishing to think how they still had this um, computer that could be uh, billions of miles from Earth, but they can reprogram it and cap- and send back all these images. Like, uh, that, and, and and it's it's just sort of a, a crazy reflection on the uh, speed of the technology's development that. Uh, we'd have so much more capability for data now on our phones. Exactly, yeah. But I think one of the, certainly one of the suggestions for why it's doing so well and why it has lasted so long was that it was more simple than we might build now. You know, that it's almost like a classic car, that it's it's robust, you know, it doesn't have a thousand million moving parts, you know, that it's a kind of a basic design that's capable of achieving an awful lot. But it's not overly complicated. I wonder, did the, any of the interviewees get into how the space program has sort of developed since then? Because at the time, there, there were all these like um, groundbreaking discoveries about the solar system. But then the, uh, uh, events would happen like the Challenger uh, explosion or other things where did, did public opinion in America seem to turn against it? Or or is there still a sort of, is there still a progression of uh, space exploration that uh, as, as NASA would like to see? I mean, it's it's changed a lot around then after Challenger and subsequently, obviously, space shuttle and all that was shut down. Human man manned flight was closed down. You know, it became focused on robotic missions, and and something as kind of as visionary or as as maybe wild as a grand tour of the outer planets, like Voyager was. Th- those kind of missions became less and less, but they are still, um, you know, there's. They've had orbital missions around Jupiter and Saturn for years now, and they've discovered amazing things. They've landed probes on one of Saturn's moons, you know, like 
last year or 2015 they, they got out to Pluto for the first time you know so hmm. there's still the ambition and the, and the madness and the scientific curiosity they're perhaps you know it's just in a different way now I mean I suppose um, President Donald Trump um, is apparently uh, in favour of more of space exploration on the other hand he's a climate change denier and is trying to get climate science and all sorts of science funding and it just feels like at the moment, the world is just progressing into nationalism and factionalism, anti-intellectualism, anti-science sort of movements springing up around the world. And along comes your documentary, which is, I suppose, re-articulating Carl Sagan's uh, more cosmic perspective, where uh, national boundaries seem petty, even though they're still so important to people. Do you do you think? Um, and then, and like maybe your film will help, but do you think there is a way of uh, bringing the public uh, towards a more uh, cosmic view of things, like, like where the, you, you can consider the bigger picture of, I, I suppose, how astonishing the, the Voyager project was, but also just what what does that mean for uh, how we're living on Earth? I know it's, you know, I would love to think the film would certainly be part of that dialogue, you know, in terms of that perspective. Certainly the pale blue dot, which is the, the photograph the Voyager took, from nearly four billion miles away that showed the earth as this tiny little less than a pixel little mote in space you know in the way that that you know caused a kind of a paradigm shift when it was revealed you know and people saw earth in that way i i think that space exploration and films about those that perspective can really help people at least ask the question about you know my film certainly asks the question could we be alone could this be the only planet that harbors life in this vast enormous universe you know and if so if it is and or indeed if there is other life out there but we've no chance of ever encountering it what a responsibility upon it places upon us to to protect it and to take care of life all life planet plant life animals you know micro i i hope there would be a revival of those kind of ideas um it would, be, it would be it would be wonderful. I'd look. I mean, it would be an honor to think that the film would even play a, a you know have a tiny voice in that conversation. Well, I mean, the film has important things to say, and uh, aside from that, it's it's really visually impressive and really coherently tells this incredible story about the voyage of the two Voyager spacecrafts. So, this will be on the big screen, the Savoy, on Sunday, the twenty sixth of February. Uh, it's it's not to be missed. I, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, we appreciate you coming into Film Ireland to talk to us about it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Do, do join us again. Thank you.